I think sometimes as biblical counselors, we become experts at systematic theology and not actually experts in the Bible. Right? So if you say, well, tell me what you think about anger. We have our five favorite verses about anger. But if you were to say, now take that second favorite verse about anger and tell me everything else that's going on in the text around it. And it might be crickets. Right? Well, I know 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. But if you say, well, tell me what 1 Corinthians 10.1-12 says. What's the context of verse 13? And again, I just think a lot of biblical counselors won't have much to say. Um, and there's nothing wrong with systematic theology, right? We have people that are experts in it. Pastor Terry here is uh, exceptional. Of course, his dad was exceptional in systematic theology. We know that. Um, but for biblical counselors, now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but we can't just depend on our systematic theology to counsel. We, we need to know uh, a little bit broader text. In fact, just yesterday... Uh, Pastor Keith and I were out uh, just hanging around and we talked through two different passages. We probably spent an hour or more just talking about two different passages where I said to him, hey, do you take this word this way or that way? And we talked about an hour on just how we take that one word. But that that will matter when it comes to how you counsel that text. But a lot of us... uh, we take the index approach, right? You look in the index, find out, oh, well, here's the top three places it looks like this word's used. We use those verses and we may or may not get them accurate. In fact, I mentioned to Keith yesterday as we were traveling, I said, well, what about this passage? And he said, well, you know, you can everything that they say out of that passage is in other Proverbs. And so even if that text isn't, uh, completely accurate, you know, you're on good footing because there are a lot of other places it's taught. And I don't disagree with them at all. But I would say, so then what do we need to do as biblical counselors? We need to go to those other places and teach it from there. Right? Let's get it right in those places uh, where we can have confidence. So when we talk about five favorite passages, essentially, these, I'm giving you the entire context. I'm giving you everything. Ray, uh, not Ray, uh, Randy Patton, which many of you know Randy. Uh, I think he's been here to teach. Randy is has said for years, it's important that we minister the word, not dispense the word. And that's about one of my favorite quotes he ever gives. Uh, and the difference between ministering and dispensing, right? you minister the word when you pick a text and you thoroughly work through that text. You dispense the word when you just throw out a verse like it's a, a aspirin or something, right? Just, hey, here's a quick verse and here's another one. I remember one time Randy and I were working together with this person, with this man, and he was learning how to counsel. And he would just give verse after verse after verse. And so we eventually, I remember one week we said, uh, as because we were talking to him after his counseling. We were listening to him counsel, then we were talking to him. And we said, why are you doing so many texts? And he says, well, man, if one is good, then multiple are just that much better. And I said, well, that doesn't work in oil, right? If if it asks for one quart, you don't put three in, right? You, one quart is enough. 
right? It doesn't work in lots of things. And, and so we got to, so he started, he did it again the next week. And so Randy said, well, let me tell you what we're going to do. Next week in counseling, you're allowed to give one verse the whole hour. So you better pick your verse carefully. <laughs> and that's what it took to get him to actually realize they really want me to just minister a text, right? Just to climb in it and help them understand it and all those good things. And and y'all were asking me, go, how did I just pick five favorites? Really, any book that I'm in, it's kind of like any course I teach. Any book I'm in, that tends to be my counseling book for a while. So right now I'm working through the book of Luke, verse by verse, and every counselee, it seems like so much of Luke applies to them. But when I go to Philippians, it'll be every every counselee, it seems like Philippians applies to them. Why? Just because that's what's in my heart, right? That's what's on my mind. And so much of the Bible is applicable in so many various ways, right? In every passage, there's only one meaning, right? And that meaning is the meaning that the Holy Spirit intended when he gave it to the original author, right? We call that authorial intent. Right, Whatever the author meant to say when he wrote it, that's the meaning of that passage. But then when you say, so but what about the significance of it or what about its application? There are many, many, many ways to apply it. Right? Think about the book of Galatians. Paul wrote it and it has a direct implication to people who were teaching circumcision as a means of going to heaven, right? as a broader broader categorical means. But I've never once had a counselee come to me and their presenting problem is that they're trying to wrestle with should we get circumcised in order to go to heaven. Right? That's never been, and my guess is, I'm on safe ground to say, I don't think that will ever happen. But we use the book of Galatians. Why? Because the meaning of that text has all kinds of applications. And those, the timeless truth there can apply to today. And so the text we're going to be looking at today, these are five of many that I could say are my favorites. But we want to find the authorial intent of them. And then we'll talk through, well, how can we apply these in various ways? So we're going to do that for five of them. Uh, so it says here, these five passages fit many or most, right? These, these are general texts. And can be used for all kinds of things. We look for external truth, pardon me, eternal truth, my apologies, in these passages, that when understood and appropriate explained can fit many of the lives and those of our, many of our lives and those of our counselees. Now, this is something that I like to mention. Uh, Randy Patton, again, I'm going to go back to what he said. He used to ask this question, and I think it's just another Wise question. What, if heard and believed, can help this particular counselee? I think that's a great question to ask when we're counseling. I'll say it again. What, if heard and believed, can help this counselee? Because, right, if we only have one passage, we're allowed to give. And I know you can give two or three. It's up to you. But if we're trying to limit, let's say it that way, if we're at least trying to limit how many passages we work through in a particular counseling session, 
then we want to ask what is the best passage for this counselee to meet them where they are that will help them to get to the next step of where they need to be. Right? I often say counseling is very simple uh, when you look at the big picture. Right, We are trying to connect a person that we're seeking to understand with a God that we're seeking to understand in a particular circumstance that we're seeking to understand. So we know more about God than we do the other two. We ask questions about the person. We ask questions about their situation. And so you put all those things together and now you say, so how do I build an agenda? The question I ask is, so what is the next step toward godliness? Right? I can't get them every step this week, but I can take them one step. And if I can get them a couple of steps, then before long, we're, I'm going to teach them how to walk better. And they're going to be able to do it on their own. So... The question I often ask is, what's next? So related to these particular texts, let's jump in and look at several of them. Again, the one on James we're going to just uh, briefly work through because we have a text on contentment. And so uh, we're going to talk more about that in a bit. But let's start here with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, these are tend to be applicable to most counseling and counselees. The love of Christ, this is kind of the timeless truth. The love of Christ motivates the believer to grow and change. The love of Christ motivates the believer to grow and change. It says then in, in the first portion, as a believer, now the notes have places where you're supposed to write in, but I've already filled all those in for you. That, because I know we have so much material, there's no reason for you to be looking for blanks. So, so whatever that looks like, that's fine. So the love of God, as a believer, pardon me, your passion is given to you by God. Let's notice in the first five verses. In God's plan, we groan for our heavenly home. In fact, it's a built-in homesickness. Right? Verse 2 says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring... To be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. What it's talking about is we are ready to get rid of this body and put on a future heavenly body. And the Holy Spirit working in us makes that desire true in our heart. It makes it where all of us prefer to be in this future house. Right? Verse 4 says, For we who are in this tent, talking about our bodies, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be uh, swallowed up by life. Essentially, he's saying is, we are burdened about the future because we really desire to get there. We look forward to that future day. So it says, now he who has prepared for prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as our guarantee. So the Spirit is what gives us that. So verse 6 through 8, because of our eternal future with Christ, we desire to be with the Lord. It says, so we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. And while we are away from the Lord, what's it say? We walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. 
So he says, we look forward to that day and and you're not going to bother me too much. We talked about this verse last night a little bit. You're not going to bother me if you just make me go to heaven now. Right? That's that's not going to be a bad deal. We've got the better end of that one. So in verse 9, and this is the one we often use in counseling. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's our verse that, one of the verses we want to look at. So he's talking about being alive in the body, being clothed in our current tent, or this future tent. And says the Holy Spirit makes us desire this future tent. We look forward to our time with the Lord. We're confident in it. And with all of that, in verse 9, he gets to the spot. Therefore, we make it our aim. The way to say aim is we make it our goal. Now, whether present or absent, what's he talking about? Well, whether, whether on earth or in heaven, either place, it doesn't matter if we're here and we're looking forward to going to heaven or if we're eventually in heaven, our goal is the same. What is our goal? It's to be well-pleasing to him. Well-pleasing here just simply means it's to live in honor of the Lord. Right? We live for his glory. So I often have counselees memorize this particular verse. Right? It's again a very general passage that no matter what pressure-filled circumstance they're in, I want them to pick up Paul's purpose here and that is we make it our aim regardless of where you're at or what you're doing to be well-pleasing to him. We want them to sense this as their purpose for life. Live for the glory of God. Now, there's, I love every one of these verses, but we have to skip some just because we have one hour. And so we jump down then to verse 14. Notice what it says. For the love of Christ compels us. Now, what does compel mean? That means it controls us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, that's Christ, then all died. And he died for all that those who live, that's the believer, should live no longer for themselves, that's depravity, but for him who died for them and rose again. So verses 14 and 15, we pick up the idea that the love of Christ is what compels us. What's it mean, control? Well, it's, it's important. And we'll use this water bottle as our example. Right, if right now, as this water bottle moves on the podium, what is going on? The water bottle is being compelled by my hand. Right, it's the outward force of my hand on the water bottle that's making it move. It's being controlled by it. So let's think then about the love of Christ. The way the text says is the love of Christ is the outward thing that what? Serves to motivate us. So when we describe love of Christ here, it's not my love for Jesus that controls me. It's not internal love. It's Christ's love, God's love for me in Christ motivates me. Right? It's the fact that God has moved on me with love. Now that love is what controls what I do. So when we say, well, what does it do for us? It says, verse 15... And I'll just read this note in 14, right? The love of God is demonstrated how? 
by the substitutionary death of Christ. He died for us. Verse 15 then, it says, So what does the love of Christ motivate me to do? The love of Christ motivates me to not live for myself anymore, but to live for Jesus. Right? So when we say it's important to live for Jesus, what is that going to look like? That's going to look like living not just simply for myself, but living for Christ. And whenever you're doing first great commandment, what? Second great commandment comes with it. So we're going to live for Christ and others, not ourselves. Again, if you're talking to almost any counselor you ever deal with, living with the purpose to be well-pleasing to the Lord, and what does that look like? Well, it looks like that the love Christ has for me, the gospel, whatever one you want to call it, that love motivates me to live for him and not for me and live for others. So what happens then in verse 16, we get a new perspective. At times, this is a very helpful verse. He says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What's Paul talking about? What it means is that we don't focus on the external things. We had one of our men, he was an older man in our church, probably in his late 70s, 80s, in that range. And he had a flat this week and a guy pulled over to help him. And he said, I looked up and saw this guy and just thought, I can't, why in the world, Lord, did you send this person? Right? And this guy had, he said, he had hair way down his back and he looked horrible. He said, scrub, just, just doesn't look good. And he said, every inch of skin had a tattoo on it and, and this guy comes over and says, can I help you? And he said, well, my tires blew out and I've got to figure out what to do with it. And he said, well, I, I know this truck well. I've worked on all kinds of them. He said, let's, let's get your jack out. And he said, well, I don't even know where the jack is. He said, well, just give me your keys and I'll show you. And he pulled the jack out, pulled his tire out, changed it within about 10 minutes. And while the guy was talking to him, the guy was talking about the Lord. I said, well, that, that just helps you, doesn't it? <laughs> That's a better lesson than I could teach him. Right? Why? Because he's looking at the wrong things. Right? This text says we don't look at people according to the flesh. What did Paul used to do? He used to look at Jesus according to the flesh. But then on the road to Damascus, he realized, oh no, Jesus isn't just a man. He saw Jesus for who he truly was. When we see people, we need to see them for their inner man. Right? We need to see past the externals and... Focus on the on their relationship with the Lord and focus on the better things. Verse 17, this is a great one. This is another statement. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, what? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has arrived. What is that text talking about? It's talking about the inner man. Right? The, when you, before you were saved, you were a slave to your outer man. Now you're no longer, not to your outer man, pardon me, you were a slave to your depravity. I misspoke. Now you are clothed in this new man. It's the same thing that we think about in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4. Right? This sense of old man, new man. And that's what he's talking about here. The old has gone. You're no longer a slave to your old man, but now you're clothed in this new man. 
verses 18 through 20 relate to reconciliation. It's possible because of Christ's substitutionary work. And so in verse 18, it's God's plan through Christ that people get become believers. It says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So reconciliation, having a right relationship with God, that's not our idea. It's not anybody's plan, but God's plan. So it's God's plan that he enacts through Christ. Verse 21, it's really the gospel in one verse. It says, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a beautiful text that describes the substitutionary atonement and sacrifice of Christ. So, a couple other thoughts here. Those who are accept Christ are the beneficiaries of this wonderful work of the Lord. And the benefit is the righteousness of God that is applied to us. And so that it includes past, present, and future sins. Again, that's great news for a counselee when we're trying to help them, get them started especially. So that's the big idea of the text. We did skip the one verse you're familiar with probably that, which is verse 20. It says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, right? We don't want to miss that one. As though God were pleading through us, we implored you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So how can you communicate this to your counselee? Let me give you a couple ways. The first way is just to describe an ambassador. Right. If we say to a counselee in verse nine, listen, your aim ought to be to well ple- be well pleasing to the Lord. And as someone who wants to be well pleasing to the Lord, the gospel means you need to love Jesus and others and serve them and not yourself. It means that you're going to view people differently. It means that the old has gone, the new has arrived. And it means that you now are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. If all of those things are true, then what do we know is true about an ambassador? A faithful ambassador does what? And so we're going to walk them through. Right, The job of an ambassador is just simply to represent. He or she does not, they're not supposed to have their own opinion or their own, they can have an opinion, but certainly they don't express what's different than what they're told to express. Right, So we want to be a faithful ambassador where we represent the values and the words and the attitudes and the behaviors of Jesus Christ to other people. It's a great way to illustrate this. What are some implications? Well, and I've got these written as if they were to my counselees. Well, what is your aim? Right? Which direction are you pointing? What would make you feel successful? What would make you feel fulfilled? What would give you satisfaction in life? The goal is what? To be well-pleasing to the Lord. To let the love of Christ motivate us. So that's the question. Does the love of Christ control you? Every person has a choice who or what we're going to live for. And this text kind of helps us with that. Either we're going to live for ourselves, or we're going to live for the Lord. And by extension for those... For the others as well. 
Through what perspective do you look at the world around you? Right? Do you see it as an ambassador or do you see it some other way? Does your life reflect that the new has come? And do you understand the hope of reconciliation? Because without it, there is no hope. Just some questions and we can't spend a long time on these. Uh, those are to the counselee. Let me give you a few to the counselor. Always be careful to balance the comfort of the gospel with the call of the gospel. What we mean by that, and it says in the next line, strive to include the gospel indicative with the gospel imperative. Now, what are we saying? The gospel indicative is the story of the gospel. This is what happened to you. So in this text, you have been now, the new has come. Right? That's what's true, is that you now are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what's true. Now what's the imperative? So therefore, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. And so we don't want to just tell them this is what you need to do. That would be the gospel call. But we need to give them the gospel comfort as well. Well, this is what God did in you and to you to enable it. Notice the next statement. You can never really counsel accurately without anchoring your counselee's hope in union with Christ. Right? Their relationship with Jesus is what makes all these things possible. This life is only possible through the power of the gospel as part of the body of Christ. So please don't neglect the connection for your counselees. Make sure they know you're not calling them just to do things that they don't have the power to do. You're calling them to do things that are consistent with what God's already doing in them. Right? So it's a both and. If you're struggling with the counselee changing, ask yourself if you've adequately taught the biblical balance here of knowing this is who you are and doing this is what you need to do. And then on page three, as you interact with other counselors, counseling training and counseling resources, pay attention to this balance. So you might give, you might give resources to your counselees. Just know kind of the, what that resource, whoever it is, the author does. Some authors spend all their time on the gospel indicative, meaning they just say how great the gospel is. And this is right. Every other words about the gospel, right? This is, this is good. The gospel is good, right? And all that's true. Some authors, you just hear, so this is what you have to do. Do this, do that, do that, do that, do that. And it's a, they live in the gospel commands, right? The goal is that both those things work together. They understand the gospel. This is what God has done. Therefore, this is the way you need to live. So as counselors, we want to try to maintain that balance as much as possible. Uh, while we teach. And this text is a good one. It has that balance in it. All right, so what's some possible homework? Well, consider the implications in this passage and have them apply that through journals maybe. Use some key passages in here like 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Have them write a card out. Review that card a certain number of times each day and memorize that verse. Why? Because we want them to begin to think, oh yes, as a believer in Jesus, whether I'm present or absent, I need to be well-pleasing to Him. So that's one thing you can do. 
you can also have them memorize this statement. What does God expect of me to bring him glory? How do I bring him glory? I can bring him glory because... I Pardon me, I can bring him glory by being like Christ. How can I bring him glory? I can bring him glory because Christ gives me the power. And God knows I'm not perfect, but he does expect me to be growing. You say, why would you have them do that particular... And then the question, where does God want me to grow and change today? Why would you have them memorize that? Because again, that's consistent with this purpose of life we're trying to teach them. Uh, There's some disciplines here that they may need to begin to grow in. Uh, We might want to get them an accountability partner, partner to help them start dealing with some specific issues listed here. And... We want to remember the basic counseling outcomes for each counselee, regardless of where we have them. So that's the first text. It's just a good text all the way around. We can use it in so many various circumstances. Uh, It tends to be very helpful. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. You're probably familiar with this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above which you are able, but with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Many of you could have quoted that with me. Well, what do we need to know about this text? Well, God wants us to understand how to view and respond to our circumstances. And what happens in this text, he teaches that our circumstances... Your circumstance is common to man. It falls inside that category. Common to man does not mean that every circumstance you're in is common to every person. Right? So if I, if, if I, uh, well, my daughter right now has a chronic kidney disease we just learned of in the last couple of weeks. Well, we don't know anybody in our life that has this same kidney disease, right? So we can't just say to her and say, well, sis, that kidney disease is common to mankind as if every person has it, right? It's not talking about at that level of common. What it's saying is, well, every person has circumstances where their body doesn't do what they want their body to do, right? It's at that level of common, right? She's... She may have a unique disease that one in ever how many thousand occasionally get. But being sick and going through suffering, that is common to man. And that's the level that this text is talking about. Because what happens, a lot of times counselees say, well, I've got this unique diagnosis. I am a bipolar something, 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 right? So they work through their axes and all the stuff and they give you this unique thing. So... That makes me unique. This text says, well, no, you're not quite so unique. Right? Your circumstance is common to man. And guess what? We have a Bible that deals with that. God is faithful even in your circumstance. Even though it's so unique to you, it doesn't fall outside this common to man category. In fact, that's our word temptation here. When it says no temptation. The word temptation is actually a neutral term. It can be translated in one of two ways. We'll see this later in James. 
It can be translated with the word temptation or it can be translated with the word trial. My favorite way to translate it is the word pressure-filled circumstance. So what you could say, because it's a neutral term, that's why I like pressure-filled circumstance. So what you could say is no pressure-filled circumstance you're ever in falls outside the category of common demand, right? It's That's me doing my own translation, but essentially it's what it means. What determines whether or not this situation is going to encourage you to sin or not is the way you respond to it. Right, so that's important. Again, we're going to explain this in a minute in James to much more detail. So what does the text say? There's no situation that isn't common. Now you get to the second half of the verse. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted above which you're able. So but God, that phrase does what? It emphasizes the character and power of God. So that's where it puts the emphasis. What does God do? He limits the power of the circumstance that the power has in your life. In other words, I've given you two things here. One, the situation cannot make you sin. Your situation, regardless of what that situation is, is not so powerful that you have to choose sin. Why do we know that? Because God is faithful, who will not allow that to happen. And the second thing it emphasizes, this is grace. The word grace is not in this text, but that's all part of God's grace to us as a believer. So what happens then? Well, the text says God provides a way of escape. Look at verse 13. But will with the pressure-filled circumstance also make the way of escape? Well, this one's confusing a lot. What's the goal of the escape? Look at the text again. He says that you may be able to bear it. What does that mean? It means... That when God promises a way of escape, it's not escape from a tough circumstance. It's an escape from sin as you go through a circumstance. That's a dramatically different way to recognize the text. So it's not escape out of, right? When we think of escape, a lot of you are old enough to remember. Remember James Kirk, Spock? Dr. McCoy, right? they would go on an away team. Right? They were out of the enterprise. They'd be on this foreign, they'd be on this other, uh, in this other planet or world or they would be on somebody else's ship and right before they would get killed or right before they would get caught or right before something bad was going to happen, they would hit that little transponder on their shirts and what would they say? Beam me up, Scotty. That is what 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's what that verse is for most Christians. Most Christians see 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as the beam me up Scotty verse. Right? God, you promised to let me get out of this. No, what God promises is to give you the grace to get through it. Dramatic difference between get out of and get through. Get through. 
So the way of escape is always provided, but the escape isn't out of the circumstance. The escape is out of sin toward faithfulness. So the escape is from sin toward faithfulness. Now look at the ways of communicating this. I don't think it's there on your... Does it say it on yours or doesn't? Okay. Okay, yes. So underneath it is blank. So you need to write in Star Trek. Right, that's a great way to communicate this text so that they understand it. What are the implications then for us? Well, the counseling must be careful to see this circumstance according to God's perspective, not the perspective of their family, church, the world, or just personal experience and logic. Right? They have to force themselves because their church could be right, their family could be right, but most of the time a lot of those things aren't. Right? So we want to see it God's way, which says we can be faithful in the midst of it. Situations fit in one category. What is that category? Normal. Normal to human experience. Again, that would shock a lot of your counselees. Why? Because when we're in the middle of a tough circumstance, we want to say, like Eeyore, have you ever seen it this bad? Right? It's No one's ever had it as bad as me. Elijah did that. Jeremiah did that. Right? We a lot of good people have done that. The counselor and the counselee must both be aware of the temptation to see this experience outside the category of common. Ultimately, though, every situation must be considered in light of the character and work of God because God is faithful, it says. God will not allow. That means he limits, he provides, he is faithful. So the grace of God is huge here for all those involved. Make sure the counselee is focused on grace. And the question is, are there ways the counselee is minimizing grace? If there are, we need to help them see those. The counselee must also consider the content of his or her prayer. What does he or she desire? What would make life perfect in this situation? Escaping from it or being faithful in it or through it? That's a great question. For the counselor, it's essential to understand how our tendencies toward misunderstanding circumstances and sin. To understand those. We must take heed lest we fall. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he falls. Now, let me just give you, I did not mention this, but I need to. Possibly you're unaware of verses 1 through 11. Right? Verses 1 through 11, what is it? It's a trip down history lane. He's talking about Israel. And he says, oh man, remember when Israel went through all those what? Pressure-filled circumstances? They failed over and over and over. And so he says, those stories are given to you as an example so that you won't fall. And so at the end of that, he says then, and no pressure-filled circumstance can force you to fall. But you need to be careful. And be aware of it. So take heed lest you fall. And so Israel's our good example. So what's some homework assignments? Well, where and what ways have I thought about my situation is different 
than part of the common human experience. I can write myself a card. I love having counselees do this. I have them write on the card, God's grace is up to the challenge. And I have them put it different places so they can see it and be reminded of that. You can have them memorize one or two verses or this week they can write down what you consider the difference between desiring to go through the situation versus to escape from the situation. Those are things they can do. Okay, we're going to skip this text. The stuff is there, but we're going to skip it because I'm going to talk about it in the last hour. And so we'll come back to this. And so I'm going to skip it for now, which has allowed me to spend a little bit longer in the other passages. So go ahead and go, if you would, to page 8. Let's talk about Ephesians 5 and 6. Boy, Ephesians is really good. Really, really good. One of my favorites. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with basically the story of the gospel, the story of redemption. When we talked about earlier the gospel comfort versus the gospel call, that would be gospel comfort. It tells us all those, it uses indicative verbs which tell the story and explains our salvation. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, they apply it. This is the gospel call. So the text, the chapters, pardon me, are split right down the middle. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 deal with what has happened. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 deal with so now what should happen in the way that I live. So notice your statement there about general context. Paul commends the believer to walk. That's the main verb of the second half of the book is to walk. What does he say? He says walk in unity. One of them I don't have him here would be walk consistently. That's in second half of chapter 4. To walk in love. That's in chapter 5. To walk in light. That's in chapter 5. And to walk in wisdom. All of those are in chapter 5. So that's a major command he has is to walk. Well, what we're going to look at is the last one called walk in wisdom. That's chapter 5, 15 through 6, 9. This is one section. So how do you understand this section? Well, beginning in 5.15 through verses 21, notice it says there is an admonition and then it's application. So if you're looking at the outline here in verses 15 to 21, this is what Paul describes. And then verses 22 through 6.9, this is how he applies it. So you can't get the application right without understanding the admonition. These are connected. A lot of times in biblical counseling, if we're not careful, what do we do? We jump in here at 522 and we start telling a wife how she's supposed to live and a husband how he's supposed to do his role. But you can't get this unless you understand this. 
Those are connected together in the text. So, so let's look at the first part. That's the admonition. Look at verse 15. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly. That means be careful how you live. Now he's going to describe two different kinds of ways to live. These are contrast. So the first one he says, Don't live like a fool, but live like a wise person. Redeem the time because the days are evil. So the first contrast is not as a fool, but as a wise person. Second contrast, not as an unwise person, but you need to know the will of the Lord. The third contrast is not drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. So now pay attention to what we have here. Just look up here for one second. Someone who is a fool is someone who is unwise and that person is like someone who is drunk. The person who is wise is someone who understands the will of the Lord and that person is filled with the Spirit. All right, so these are two compare, contrasting panels. So let's look at the, let's think about the last one. So what is it? What's the difference between someone who's drunk with wine and someone who's filled with the Spirit? The difference is in the way that they can think. The drunk person has what? He has fuzzy thinking. Right? He's being controlled by something else. This verse isn't about drinking. The verse is about the Spirit. It's about the way you think. When you're pulled over or when you've had too much to drink, you can't think right. Therefore, you can't walk right, drive right, or many other things right. Well, the opposite of that, he says, is what? It's being filled with the Spirit. The best way to understand being filled with the Spirit is uh, the parallel passage is Colossians 3.16. And it says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly in all things. So essentially, when you say this person is filled with the Spirit, what you're saying is that this person has a clear God consciousness. Right? They are thinking accurately and carefully about God, about the fear of God, about Jesus Christ. So now what happens? Look at verses then, 19 through 21. The consequences of being filled in the Spirit. They, these are what's called participles of result, which means in verses 19, 20, and 21, if you are filled with the Spirit, this is the way you're going to live. Well, what are those? Well, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. And giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final one is submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Ah, now we understand how this text is connected to all these next few verses. Follow, the, follow me real quick. If you walk in the Spirit, which means you have a clear God consciousness, you have clear thinking as it relates to God in this moment, 
If that is true, then you are going to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. Now, what is submitting to one another? It means you accept the role that God has called you to, whatever that role is. Well, then Paul explains those roles. So he talks to the ladies, he talks to the men. He applies what are the roles that God's called us to. He uses... In that period of time, it was called a household code. It was the way that you would give the rules for your house. He uses that in this text. And how does he apply it? Well, he applies it in three particular areas. He says, husband and wife, this is the way it applies. Parents and children, this is the way it applies. Servants and masters or employees and employers, this is the way it applies. So, so, we don't want to miss that in this text, what Paul's doing is he's trying to explain that how you walk with the Lord. If you're walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, then you should function this way inside the home. So you never want to teach how to function in the home without going backwards and being clear, this is how you do that. What does that mean? That means that anytime there's a submission problem, what is there? There's a greater worship problem. Right? It's always a, a spiritual issue. Anytime the husband's not leading like Christ, what's the bigger problem? It's he's not walking in the spirit. But there's a connection between those. How can we explain this to our counselee? Well, I love to use a hunting metaphor. I do that because it says, be careful how you walk. Whenever you hunt or something like that, and you walk through the woods, you don't have to talk about hunting. You could talk about hunting mushrooms. But when you're walking through the woods to hunt mushrooms, what do you have to do? You have to be careful where you walk. You have to be careful what you step over, careful where you're standing, Animals, all those types of things, you have to be careful, pay attention. You could talk about walking on ice or walking in the snow. There's all kinds of illustrations of being careful how you walk. And then I like to use military rank because in submission, right, military rank, they submit to the role they have. The person with the highest rank is not always the smartest person. But even if you're smarter than the person that has a higher rank, what do you have to do? You submit to your role. And so that's good to help people think through submission. All right, some implications then. Where is the counseling not living wisely? Where are they not paying attention? Is the counseling regular reading, memorizing, and applying the Bible? Why? Because if they're not thinking about the Bible, they're not going to be walking in the Spirit. Where's the counsel, what's the counselee's atmospheric conditions? That is his attitude toward God, his attitude toward others, his attitude toward his circumstances. How does the counselee define submission? That's important. I like this statement. Horizontal chaos always has as its root a vertical problem. Right? So we want to think through that. That this text helps us get there for sure. Relational conflict really isn't about the other person. Conflict is really a more reflection of your own heart as it relates to the Lord. And then make sure each counselee understands how he or she fits in the roles that God has given him.
some homework. They can make a list of roles and then define what submission looks like in each one of those roles. They can keep a frustration journal. When they're frustrating, what's going on? The goal would be to figure out what's happening at the heart. You can have them memorize some passages here. And uh, daily living happens in the context of a spiritual battle. You can help them work through that in a journal as well. All right, that's the fourth one. Let me work through the fifth one. I told you it's a lot for one hour, isn't it? This is number four. We'll just go a minute or two into overtime here. So in Second Peter chapter 1, you get a model for personal growth. And that's why I said all of these are very general passages and can be used for most all counselees at some point in counseling. In Second Peter 1, remember a couple key things. Paul writes this to Christians... And your counselees are Christians. Should be. And what? It's people who have the knowledge of the Lord. That's going to be important as we go through this text. When we talk about knowledge, it's an intimate and informed relationship with the Lord. That's our word knowledge here. So now let's ask three. We're going to, we're going to pick up we're going to pick up four specific things in this text. We're going to do it quickly, though. Verses 8 and 9, we get the reason for personal growth. Why are we to grow? Verse 8 and 9 says, For if these things are yours and abound, you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge that you're in your intimate relationship with Jesus. That's not in the content of the Bible you understand. Right, So knowledge here means relationship in verse 8. It does not mean how many verses you've memorized. Right, It's not that kind of knowledge. So what happens? Well, someone says they know the Lord, but they're living a barren life, an unproductive life. That's why we need to understand this. Why are they doing that? Because they're missing the progressive productive growth that they should have, they're not abounding as the text says. Why aren't they abounding? Because they have forgotten, right? Look at verse 9. It says the believer who lacks these things is short-sighted. They have forgotten who they are. When it says short-sighted, it's like you close your eyes, right? You have, have you ever had a child, if you ever played hide-and-seek with a child and they go stand behind a curtain. Right? They see, you can see their feet, but they think they're completely covered. Why? Because they can't see you. They think then that you can't see them. That's kind of the idea of forgotten the gospel. It doesn't mean you're not saved, but it means that you've put yourself in a place where you're not seeing the big picture anymore. Right? You're not remembering the gospel. What else? Uh, Right, so you're for, you've forgotten the gospel. That's what I should say in verses 8 and 9. So why, what's the reason for personal growth? <clears throat> because it's easy to be ineffective and unproductive. Now notice verse, verses 3 and 4. What's the source of personal growth? Well, it says, As His divine power 
has given us all things. The source of personal growth is this divine power or what we're going to call the resurrection power of Christ. Right? It's given to us through the Holy Spirit. And what does it say? Has given us, all believers get that power. Every one of us get this power. What have you been given? Well, now look at verse 3. It says, we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does that mean, friends? That means that everything necessary for you to live a life that honors Jesus Christ, you receive those things when? The moment you got saved or the moment you have and had or started an intimate relationship with the Lord. You say, why is that important? Because a lot of times we come to this verse and I've heard pastors imply that this is in the... Everything you need for life and godliness is where? It's in the Bible. In reality, what this text is saying, everything you've received for life and godliness is in Jesus. It's the change that happens in you the moment you get saved. Now, the Bible is important. We're going to talk about that. But when you tell somebody you have everything you need for life and godliness, if they're a believer, that's always true. You say, but they don't know all the Bible verses. That doesn't matter. It's not talking about content. It's talking about capacity. Right? Every, let's say it this way. Uh, many of you are a little bit older. Uh, my age or older, right? So we would be on the other side of that fence, whatever the fence is. So what would we know? We would know how to drive both an automatic and uh, a stick. What do you call it? Stick or standard? Standard. Thank you. Right? I grew up driving those. Well, I can put my 16-year-old in a vehicle that is a standard and it can have a good battery, great tires, fuel. It can have everything necessary to go down the road, but he's not going to be able to do it very well. Why? Because even though the capacity's there, he's not learned to apply that in the way that he's living. Right? So think about it. When you get saved, you have the capacity in every way to honor the Lord. But it's going to take some practice and it's going to take some wisdom to do, to do that well. Right? The first time I ever drove a standard, it's a lot different than the way I drive them now. And I live in Ozark, Missouri, in the Ozark Mountains. Right? The, that's the last thing you want to be is sitting on a mountain in a standard. Right? If you have to stop, now you've got to get that thing going again on the side of a hill. Branson, Missouri. Oh, heavens. I don't know how many times I thought I was going to hit somebody on the, behind me. It was a mess. But I did learn it. So, the source is the power of the Lord that you received in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay, so then, what does it mean you've been given these precious promises? Well, the Bible explains all that you receive when you get saved. So what's the pathway for personal growth? Page 11. I got to wrap up here. Pathway for personal growth is now you need to do something. Notice it says, but for this reason, 
Give all diligence. So what did we just say? We have the capacity to do it right in Christ. And because we have the capacity, now what do we need to do? We need to practice it. We need to begin to live it. So he says, make every effort. Give all diligence to what? Add to your faith virtue. To your virtue knowledge. Ah, this is a different knowledge. Same English word, but a different knowledge. The first knowledge is what? It is your relationship. This knowledge, and great answer. This knowledge is learning what the Bible says. It's part of our content and then applying it. So we do need to know the Bible and we can talk about the Bible being sufficient. But the knowledge of Christ is what gives you everything you need for life and godliness. The Bible then helps you grow. What else? Self-control. To self-control, you need to add perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. So you're going to add to the foundation that you have in Christ. All right, so one last thing. Verse 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. What's the promise of personal growth? Well, the promise is, look at verse 10. It says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So that means we need to work hard at sanctification. And if we do, two things happen. One of them's not in your notes. I don't know why it's not in there. Here's the first one. Sorry, it says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. That one's not in your notes. You will never stumble is what you're missing. What does it mean you'll never stumble? It means that you'll never commit the kinds of sins that would make you wonder whether or not you're a believer. That's what it means by stumble. And the second promise is an entrance into eternity is provided for you. In other words, when you die, both doors will be open. Right, You'll have the full welcome committee. Or we could say you'll have confidence as you face death. All right. How can you use this? Well, how can you communicate this? I think you can talk about exercising, getting the full effect of exercise. I can't talk about that because I don't exercise. Pastor Keith could. He does it. He could be the specimen of exercise and explain it well. So that might be one way you could explain it. Another way is you can use stair steps, right? Just talk about going up a stair one level to the next in terms of abounding, growing, going from one level to the next. Another one, just personal stories about the fall of preachers or about just Christians in general that have struggled in their faith. And we can say, well, what what we know is that they could have not struggled in the same ways had they paid close attention to this process we're talking about. All right, we're out of time. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these dear friends. We pray that you'd please help us to use these passages both in our own sanctification and in the way we honor you and everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.